Welcome to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast on a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is To Catch a Fraudster. In today's podcast, we decided to take a different focus than in our past podcast. Today, we want to focus on the government's role in the case that we will discuss. Why? Because today's case took me down memory lane to about 20 years ago when I responded to my first Department of Justice subpoena on behalf of a client. No matter how long it's been, Haley, you never forget your first subpoena, that is. Get your mind out of the gutter. Um, the OIG, on behalf of the Department of Justice, served a subpoena deuces tecum on a client in which the government required that the client produce all of their medical director agreements as well as time records that were related to those agreements. The DOJ was investigating an allegation from a disgruntled competitor that the medical director agreements were not needed and or the services were not provided, and that the compensation being paid to the physician for those medical director services was a disguised kickback to refer federal health care program beneficiaries to the hospital, as listeners to this podcast would realize that would if they're true, that would violate the Medicare anti-kickback statute. These were allegations that my client vehemently denied. Our client fully complied with the subpoena and presented detailed time records evidencing that the administrative services that were described in the agreement were in fact needed and were provided in the manner described in each agreement. The client was also able to show the Department of Justice that the physicians were paid a commercially reasonable fair market rate for the medical services that they did provide. What surprised me at the time, although with experience, I have to tell you, little surprises me today, was that in the closing discussion with the assistant U.S. attorney, in which he informed me that the Department of Justice was closing its investigation of our our client. During that discussion, the assistant U.S. attorney informed me that his office used the time records that were provided by the hospital as a basis to subpoena the office records of several of the medical director as a random spot audit of the accuracy of the hospital's time records. He informed me that they were looking to see whether the physicians were treating patients on vacation or otherwise occupied when they claimed to be providing medical director services to the hospital. In this case, the audit of the physician's office record supported the information that was produced by the hospital, and as a result, we were able to use the response to the government subpoena to convince the Department of Justice that the physicians were in fact providing needed administrative services for the hospital as evidenced by the time records attached to their medical director agreements. This experience taught me to stress to clients not only the need to document the time that a physician spends providing administrative services to a hospital, but that the accuracy of that documentation is as important, if not more so, than the documentation itself. A lesson that, as Hala will explain, the individual involved in this week's podcast had to learn the hard way. Hala, why don't you tell us about what happened? All right, Henry. So this week, we focus on Susan Ongaway Shingwei, who prior to her guilty plea was an attorney licensed to practice in New York and Maryland. And how much longer she will enjoy that status remains to be seen. It's true, Henry. Now, Susan's story starts in August 2016, a few years before she was licensed to practice law. In fact, while she was in law school. 
So various times while Susan was, work, was working on her Master of Law degree from the University of Maryland, she was employed as a personal care aide by two different home agencies in the District of Columbia. Now, the home health agencies employed her to assist D.C. Medicaid beneficiaries in performing activities of daily living, like getting in and out of bed, bathing, dressing, and eating. Now, personal care aides have to document the care they provide on their timesheets so that it accurately reflects the dates and times that services were provided, it itemizes the personal care aid services rendered, and the amount of time spent providing each service in the location where the care was rendered. Now, these timesheets are then used to justify the hours of personal care aid services that Susan provided to the Medicaid beneficiaries when the home health agency filed a reimbursement claim with Medicaid. So in 2015, the FBI and the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General opened an investigation into one of the home health agencies Susan was working for in order to investigate allegations of fraud. Now, based on court documents, this investigation was initiated before Susan even started working at the home health agency. However, since government investigations tend to last for an extended period, during the course of that investigation, law enforcement Susan was hired at the agency and law enforcement was eventually able to identify her as a personal care aide who appeared to submit claims that were either false because they either didn't provide care at all or the care would have been impossible for Susan to provide. Now, as Henry explained earlier, the way the government conducts these investigations involves a lot of cross-referencing documents, timestamps, and so on to find inconsistencies. During the course of this investigation, the, the government was able to review and determine a couple of different things. So as described before, Susan submitted timesheets for all the personal care aid services she provided. And then from August 2016 to May 2017, while Susan was obtaining her Master's of Law degree at the University of Maryland, her courses were held in person at the law school in Baltimore. And for those of you that don't know, law schools have very stringent attendance requirements. They're required to do this so they can maintain their accreditation. But so, for instance, when I was in law school, we were required to sign in at the beginning of every class. And if you missed more than a set number of classes, you automatically failed the course. So if Susan had a class, she more than likely was there. So the government was able to compare her timesheets with her University of Maryland Law School course schedule to determine the hours she was supposed to be present in class. And they were fairly easily able to define that her timesheets said she was providing personal care aid services at the same time she was scheduled to be in class. Now, of course, Susan could have missed a few classes. However, the University of Maryland required Susan to swipe into the law school building with a key card, a common practice in many urban schools. And this led the FBI to a key card log of the entry and exit times for the University of Maryland key associated with Susan. So they could track Susan's presence at the law school with the times on the claims for personal care aid services that she submitted. It should come as no surprise that the FBI found that Susan claimed to have provided personal care services during times that the university's key card records showed that she was on their campus. Now, it's also important to note that the distance between D.C. and Baltimore is an hour or more, and that's without traffic. So it's not like she could have easily moved between work and school. So if the key card records showed she arrived on campus, she had not been at work for a significant period of time. And even on top of that, the FBI also tracked her location using cell towers. And Susan's cell phone records provided further evidence that her cell phone was in Baltimore during her scheduled law school classes, times that the home health company's claims showed that she was supposedly providing services. And then, to quadruple confirm their suspicions, the FBI placed Susan under surveillance. 
And while under FBI surveillance, she was billing for personal care aid services when the FBI agents could see she wasn't at their homes or when she billed for them longer than she was actually present. So they even had FBI agents as eyewitnesses. And if that's not enough, the FBI then interviewed Susan. As we've stated before, when you're being questioned by the government, shut up or tell the truth. Notwithstanding the many ways that the FBI could and did track her movements, she lied to them. Uh, so she told agents that she never billed for hours that she didn't work. And she also told the agent that if she was late to work, she did not adjust her timesheets to reflect her correct work. And based on the government's very extensive and thorough investigation, in total, it was revealed that on 118 different occasions, Susan submitted timesheets claiming she worked as a personal care aide when she, in fact, did not. The result is that Susan pled guilty in November of 2021 to health care fraud. As part of her guilty plea, she admitted that she submitted false timesheets claiming to provide personal care aid services that she did not actually render and acknowledged that she successfully defrauded the D.C. Medicaid program out of $131,656. Now, one count of health care fraud carries a maximum of 10 years in prison and additional financial penalties. This year, Susan was sentenced to 10 months in prison for defrauding the, the D.C. Medicaid program out of more than $100,000. Following her prison term, she will be placed on two years supervised release. She will also have to pay $131,656 in restitution and an equal amount in a forfeiture money judgment. Based on this guilty plea, in all likelihood, she will be excluded from all federal health care programs, lose her license to provide personal care aid services, and on top of that, be disbarred. All of which is a tough way to learn that she, what she could have learned by taking a health law or maybe an ethics class in law school or listening to the kickback chronicles, that honesty is the best policy and that there is a steep penalty to pay for committing health care fraud. Now, as you can see from this week's episode, government often begins to investigate one entity, which leads them to focus on someone entirely different. This week's podcast also showed how the government uses claims that have been submitted by a provider, as well as a number of different tools to investigate and prosecute healthcare fraud. Healthcare providers need to be aware of the government's modus operandi in order to avoid becoming a target of an investigation or worse yet, an episode of the Kickback Chronicles. If you want to learn more about the Fraud and Abuse Laws, the No Surprises Act, and much more, we invite you to join myself, Dan Mulholland, and Mary Paterni in our hospital, physician, contracts, and compliance clinic that will be held in Las Vegas, Nevada, from November 17th to the 19th. And should you miss that program, we repeat that program on an annual basis. Just check our website for times and locations. Thanks for listening and tune in next time to the Kickback Chronicles to keep learning from the misfortune of others. Mm-hmm.